Good morning. I missed you all last week. Braxton and I got to go on a little camping trip to the Davis Mountains, so thank you, Tyler, for filling in. I appreciate that. And it's uh, good to be back here with everyone. We're going to be in the book of Malachi this week. I think it was Wade Yeary a few weeks ago asked me how I picked what my sermon series were going to be, and I didn't have a real good answer for him. It seems it's kind of varied from time to time, but I, I do have a reason this time for picking this particular book. I got to look in. I knew that Daniel's going to be here in seven weeks, so I had seven weeks that needed to be covered. And uh, I thought, well, as I'm looking, I need to look back over the things that I have preached and the things that I hadn't. And one of the things I noticed on our preaching schedule is we've covered a few elements from the Old Testament. I mean, in the last year, we've talked about Noah, and I enjoyed talking about that together. We talked about Esther. We um, had a mini-series on Sunday night from the Psalms. But aside from that, we've spent most of our time in the New Testament. And so I think as I'm kind of wrapping up my, my time here at the pulpit, that we need to shift back to the Old Testament and spend some time over there. And so if we're going to be in the Old Testament, what a, and we only have seven weeks to do it, what a better place than to start at the very end when they are about to shift from one voice to a new voice. Okay? So here we are in the, in the book of Malachi, and I'm going to prepare you for this new and better voice that's about to show up, Daniel. <laughs> I jest. But I am really excited, um, and, and I do want to take a second, because I missed the announcement last week, to just tell y'all how excited I am for Daniel to join us on staff. You know, I've been, been getting to know him over the last few weeks, and um, y'all are going to love him. Y'all are going to love his family. Y'all are going to love him personally. He is a serious Bible student. And I think that's one of the things that matters most. He's going to stand behind this pulpit. If y'all recall, the first sermons that I gave as Chris was left was, was our commitment to being a biblical church from Second Timothy. And, and I believe Daniel is going to, to, to take that torch up and carry it with, with passion. Um, he is a, he's a tremendous personality, but he has a conviction for God's truth. And I think that, that we should be excited for Daniel to be here. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm also excited for all that y'all are going to be able to be for Daniel. I think that his family is going to benefit a lot from this family. It's a really special place to raise kids. And I think that we can also provide someone like him uh, with the talent that he has an opportunity to really, really be a big light for God's kingdom. And I'm excited about that. So um, we're going to be in Malachi, so be turning your Bibles there. Um, I was kind of thinking before we spent seven weeks in Malachi, it probably warranted just a few minutes of a review of some of the basic facts about it. If y'all are like me, the Old Testament is probably not where you tend to go as much as other places. And specifically in some of these smaller, minor prophets... Not really a place that I'm as familiar with as some of the other ones. There's not necessarily great children's stories that come out of the minor prophets, so we don't find ourselves poring over them since childhood. And so oftentimes we're a little bit uninformed and a little bit disconnected with the reality of what's happening here. But the book of Malachi is an interesting one. First question is, who is Malachi? Who wrote it? And, and here's the answer. We have no idea. Uh, scholars even debate whether Malachi was a proper name or not because it actually means my messenger in the Hebrew and so it could be that this was just God denoting this is my messenger and aside from that one verse introduction at the beginning of Malachi we're told nothing about him and so this really is this just 
as if it's a stream of consciousness from God itself, and it showed up around 450 B.C., sometime during that 5th century um, um, prior to Christ. It was written after the temple was rebuilt, and the Jews had come back from their Babylonian exile, and they were getting settled back into this promised land, and they had in their mind that things were about to get better and things were about to improve. And as they looked around and and kind of breathed a sigh of relief, their eyes came up and they said, hmm, this isn't exactly what we expected it to be. You see, there were some reforms that had begun to be put in place by Haggai and Zechariah, maybe 60, 80 years earlier. But as they looked around, they start to find that they didn't really seem like they were working. And the Israelites during this period were were skeptical and, and cynical. They were apathetic and disengaged in their worship. They were honestly living immoral and broken lives. And yet, as we step into this book of Malachi, we see that they are kind of wagging their finger at God a little bit and accusing him of some sort of misconduct. So it's a really interesting book with an interesting bit of tension. The way it's structured is almost like a a scene from a a courtroom. And what you're going to see unfold over the next six weeks is six different interactions, questions and rebuttals, where a a statement is made and a question is asked. And honestly, it's almost like God is is, is called to the front of the room to defend himself. And as I look at the book of Malachi, I find that to be kind of interesting. I find it not only interesting that the people would challenge God the way that they did, because I mean, that, maybe that shouldn't surprise me. We do the same thing. But what I find super interesting is that God provides them an answer. The Almighty God stands in front of his people. He didn't have to justify himself at all, and yet, yet he does. He, he stands up and he provides a response to their accusations. And as I asked myself why, I think my, my answer comes from this week's lesson. From the first series, from the first of of six questions, I think God lays the foundation here at the beginning of the book in this first accusation and his first defense. And here's the bottom line. God provides an answer and he engages in this dialogue that we find during this transition time before 400 years of prophetic silence. And he steps to the table and he says, this is the first and foremost thing you need to know. I love my people. God loves his people. And so we're going to start there, and then we're going to spend five weeks after this unpacking all of the other questions, and then the seventh and final week, we're going to look at the summary statement in Malachi chapter 4. So if you haven't already turned to Malachi, I would like for you to do so. If you're struggling to find it, go to Matthew, the very first book in the New Testament, and then turn back two pages, and there you're going to find Malachi. We're going to be in Malachi chapter 1. While you're turning there, I'm kind of wondering if anyone has ever seen the cinematic masterpiece of The Three Amigos. Good, I'm glad. Y'all got a little better response than early service. They're, they're, a, bunch, they're a bunch of duds, I guess. Um, you be careful. I got a lot of friends in early service. But The Three Amigos, I mean, this, this, this is a big one. Um, Chevy Chase, Steve Martin, Martin Short, they are The Three Amigos, these... Uh, 
these uh, actors that are mistaken for actual heroes that find themselves in the small Mexican village of Santa Poco that's being terrorized by the bandit El Guapo and his gang of, 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 of well, I don't know what, you, and his gang, and the El Guapo's gang. And so um, it's, it's really this hilarious, um, just from laugh to laugh to laugh. But one of my favorite scenes is not um, actually surrounding the three amigos, but it's actually this interaction between El Guapo and his right-hand man, Jefe. Okay? So it's El Guapo's birthday, and we kind of get to see a soft side of the bandits here in The Three Amigos. You'll actually see on the screen, this is El Guapo receiving a birthday sweater, and he's very excited. So you wouldn't expect that, but bandits do have a soft side. But just before this interaction, El Guapo was a little bit down. And Jefe, as his right-hand man, was trying to cheer him up. And so El Guapo's up on his horse, and he's looking down at Jefe, and Jefe looks at him and says, I have put many beautiful piñatas in the storeroom, each of them filled with little surprises. And El Guapo's eyes kind of light up, and he says, Many piñatas? He says, Oh, yes, many. Would you say I have a plethora of piñatas? He says, A what? A plethora. He says, oh, yes, you have a plethora. He says, Jefe, what is a plethora? He says, why, El Guapo? He says, well, you told me I had a plethora, and I would just like to know if you know what a plethora is. I would not like to think that a person would tell someone he has a plethora and then find out that person has no idea what it means to have a plethora. Jefe says, Forgive me, El Guapo. I know that I, Jefe, do not have your superior intellect and education, but could it be that once again you are angry at someone else and choosing to take it out on me? (laughs) Wonderful interaction. Now, I would hate to equate anything biblical to the three amigos, but I'm about to. Because I think what we see here at the beginning of, of Malachi is not a comedic interaction at all, but a similar type of, of back and forth, where as the scene unfolds, we see that God makes a statement. And instead of just accepting it, it's kind of like the people turn it back on him, and they're like, you say you love us, but do you really know what that means? Really? We're going to call this love? It's almost what they seem to be saying. Let's read it. Malachi 1, 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how? How have you loved us? It's not Esau's, Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. God says, I have loved you. And they basically say, (laughs) whatever. Do you really really know what that means? How, how have you loved us? There's an accusatory tone to their response. And I want to talk about that a little bit. Because I I want us to put ourselves in their shoes and ask ourselves, how, how would we reply? If God stood in front of us and said, I have loved you. 
I think most of us would be quick to affirm God's love. We would nod our heads. But if we're being totally honest, there have been times, maybe now, maybe other times in your life, where you really expected it to look a little bit different than it does right now. And if you were to answer God honestly, you would say, how? How have you loved me? How have you loved us? You know, I think back over the history of my life, and there's certainly been times when I felt very loved. I think all of you would probably have moments like that that you look back with fondness, certain special moments, maybe when you were a child on a a birthday or a Christmas, or maybe after a special game when you received some affirmation. Maybe it was an impactful conversation that your mind goes back to, times when you felt undeniably loved. Perhaps these moments you can recall were with a parent or a spouse or a family member. And it's in those moments that you look back, and if someone had walked up to you and said, in those moments, I love you, you would have said, yeah, I know. Thanks. That's really, that's really special. In those moments, you see good things happening, and you're comfortable, and you're content, and you feel like things are uh, in order and under control. But then there's other, been other times in your life when you probably were loved, but you didn't feel that way, and you felt abandoned. It's a little unfair to my mother to use this as an illustration, because there were a, a thousand times that she came running to my room when I was in the middle of despair in the middle of the night, probably because I needed something like a drink of water and thought that I was going to die in the next 15 seconds if I didn't get it. But I distinctly remember one time, I can remember a handful of times that she came in, but I distinctly remember one time when I called out to her and it had to have taken her probably 20, 30 seconds easy to show up instead of the normal 10 or 15. And I was devastated. I mean, I remember thinking, I have been abandoned. I am going to lay here in this bed and, 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 and wither away into nothing. I mean, I've been abandoned. I'm never going to be saved. My mother no longer loves me anymore. And, of course, soon after I had those feelings, uh, she entered the room and everything was okay. But for some reason, my mind latched on to that. And the truth is, I think that our minds tend to latch on to the times of difficulty and the times of strife. When things are scary and when things feel uncertain and when we feel like we are out of control, those are the moments that if someone stepped in and said, hey, I love you, you would say, really? How? And that's where Israel was. And it's a place that we've all been. You know, the truth is a lot of life is lived in a frustrated state where we don't have the maturity or, to, or, or insight to feel loved when we are. We know that how we feel is, is seldom a reflection on reality. We know that often the circumstances in the present moment may not be accurately portraying the, the bigger picture of everything that is happening. Yet for some reason, and in particular with God, we are quick to send accusations when things don't look like we believe that they should. So why in this moment would Israel have felt so unloved? Well, as we look through the book, and as you'll see unfolding over the next few weeks, they weren't doing the things that they should have been doing. They were offering terrible sacrifices. They had stopped being faithful in their tithing and giving to the temple. They were surrounded by and listened to a priesthood that continually fed them things that were not true. 
We see that they were a, a society that was plagued with divorce and brokenness and broken covenants. And as we look at this picture of, of where they were at, they look out and say, it doesn't feel like it was supposed to be like this. This is not what we expected. And, and they point their finger at God and they say, how dare you? How dare you allow our lives to be this dumpster fire that it is? And God looks down at them and he says, no, you need to understand something. There is a foundational truth that you are not seeing. I have loved you. I have loved you. I, I have loved you. What's the purest form of love? You know, we say we love a lot of things. I love fish, you might say. But you don't really love fish. You love how eating fish makes your stomach fill. You know, what you really like is destroying fish. Okay? So, so there's that type of love, and, and we know how that one plays out. But we often say other things like, I love you. I love you, and, and, and really what we mean is I have affectionate feelings towards you, but we struggle with maintaining this feeling when a person's resourceful to us, resourcefulness to us is depleted. Now, I think there are a, a few relationships that are meant to be different. I mean, as Christians, we're supposed to approach love differently. We look at marriage, though. That's, that's one where love is declared and, and coupled with a covenant and a commitment. There's definitely a, a, a higher level there than just affection, problem is that covenant's also often broken, but it does come very close, I think, in, in modeling to us God's type of commitment to us. The problem is this is a two-way commitment that can be broken by one party's misconduct. Perhaps we could move our thoughts to the relationship between a parent and a child. I think that comes close to what the type of love that we're talking about here. We certainly see parents who have chosen to withhold love for various reasons, but it shouldn't be like that. The truth is, we see a lot of, of parents extend a type of love that's seldom found elsewhere, a love that will absorb and put up with a tremendous amount of abuse and require almost nothing in return, a love that keeps giving and giving and giving. That's how it's supposed to be. I think that comes close to what God means here. The purest form of love, I believe, is choosing someone. A one-sided love. A, a commitment that requires nothing in return. A love that is totally, completely, internally motivated from one party. Because to be honest, and I want you to think about this a little bit, anything less, anything with a contingency placed on it, in my opinion, ceases to really be love. God starts off by clarifying this. And he says, I love you. And they say, how? And he says, I chose you. And I did not choose others. I've loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I've loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. In other words, God is saying, I have extended to you the absolute purest form of love. 
And I believe we see as the, the book unfolds how profound this is because these people that were wagging their finger at God certainly did not deserve to be loved. But in the midst of their brokenness, God points them back to this time in history and says, but, but I chose you. The truth is this, the problems that they were blaming on God were a direct result of them living contrary to how he had designed and laid out and shared with them. They should have known better. They could have done differently. The problems had nothing to do with God's love. God's love was present and irrevocable because he had elected to bestow it on them long ago in history. Now, the text uses some other very powerful language. It talks about hate. In verse 3, but Esau I've hated. I've laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered but will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build but I will tear down and they will forever be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. He actually exerts more effort describing this, this, this element to them. And, and I think this is perhaps so that they could see the difference, the contrast. Because the truth is, both groups of people, Israel and the Edomites, experienced heartache and destruction. But on Israel's side, they had hope. And on the side outside of God's choosing, on Edom's side, on the rest of the world, there was no hope. You see, within the borders of his people, God has made a commitment to be continually present. And this commitment continues despite their brokenness. And I ask myself, what does it look like? And the truth is, it's looked like different things throughout history. When a people trust him, they thrive, they're blessed, they experience peace, they're safe and fed and cared for and protected. And when they do not trust him, God continually intervenes and provides a means for reconciliation. Beyond the borders of his people, the Lord is exalted in a different way. Beyond the borders, we see a people trying to rebuild but fell. In that, there is no blessing and no peace and no protection and no stability, no reconciliation outside of, of God's choosing. And I think when your eyes are open to see this contrast between these, these, two, these two groups these two ways of living, these two approaches to life, when your eyes are open to that, your heart recognizes, and the only response is for you to say, like Malachi 1.5, great is the Lord, even beyond the border of Israel. Now, I really only have one takeaway today. I started off with three, so y'all can, uh, can thank me later for removing two of them decided we were going to focus on the one that I believe was the most important, the most profound and fundamental element of the book of Malachi is the reality of God's love. And this opening statement frames everything within the prophecy, and I think that it is important for us to wrap our minds around this main opening point, and here's what I believe he is trying to get across, and the thing that I believe he needed Israel to know, and that he wants you to know, and it is this, everything flows, everything flows from God first acting. I have loved you, says the Lord. Now, I believe the Israelites understood this throughout the Old Testament, but we struggle with it today. Our mind immediately goes to the difficult doctrine of predestination and election. 
The truth is, it is talked about often throughout the Bible. It's there, and we can't get away from it. And it's definitely something that we need to talk about. But we wrestle with it because it seems to conflict with this idea of our individual freedom. And I think that's one of the reasons when we step into Malachi, we cringe a little bit when we read this passage. We, we wrestle with this. And while I don't have time to unpack the doctrine of predestination and, and election at this point, I, I think I can speak a little bit to some of our misunderstanding as we unpack this text. You see, God has predestined. He has chosen who his people will be. And there was a point in history where God stepped in and said, I've chosen Jacob over Esau. In fact, as we look throughout the history of time, we see often God made choices. In fact, Ephesians chapter 1 is one of the passages we wrestle with, and it talks about predestination and, and God's elect. And it's Paul, and he's writing. He's, I, I actually believe he's talking about the apostles themselves being elected for a particular purpose. God has called out elect individuals for sovereign purposes numerous times throughout the course of history. In Ephesians 1, 11 through 13, Paul writes his, this, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Now, oftentimes we read that passage and Paul is saying we, and so we just jump in and we think that applies to us. But look at this language shift in verse 13. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. In other words, Paul is saying God did choose us. He chose us apostles, and he gave us the special message, and the reason that he chose us, the reason that we were the first fruits, the reason that we were first exposed to this truth is so that we could deliver it to him so that you could experience this, this love and awesomeness of having the Holy Spirit and being in Christ. That's what he is trying to communicate. So there have been specific people elected for specific purposes by God, but even these were for the benefit of his people. The takeaway from this passage in Malachi should not be that God chose before time an in-group and an out-group, and you have no say in whether you are loved or whether you are hated. That is not the takeaway from Malachi. The takeaway from Malachi is this. You can point back to a specific time in history when God made a choice. And that choice that God made means everything. God decided to love Jacob. It happened in Genesis 25, 21 through 28. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. And the children struggled together within her. And she said, if it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, two nations are in your womb. And two peoples from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. It's unpacked more in Romans chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Paul writes about it like this. He said, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger, as it is written from Malachi. Jacob I have loved, but Esau I hated. 
Church, God chose a people to love. He chose a place in the world for his love to land, and he chose another people to hate. He chose a place in the world where his love would not land. And we struggle with that language. It makes us cringe a little bit because of its being phrased that way. But the bottom line, this is simply another way of talking about things like, like hell, a place where God is not. And so as we back up and we consider the full picture, as the story unfolds, we find, as Scripture continues, this was for the purpose of giving the entire world a place where they could turn for love. If you look out and observe, you will find that there are broken people everywhere. You're broken. Everyone that's not here this morning is broken. Everywhere you look, there is brokenness. But there is something different with God's people. With God's people, his love, his love is there. And even though they don't deserve it, he chooses to give it. And God's choosing is what changes everything. Church, you haven't been left without hope. Because of God's choice, you actually have options. You can be in or out, loved or hated, blessed or cursed. And throughout history, God has been setting this up and setting this up so that there would be a better option. You see, if it had been left up to us, the only option would be out. I have loved you, says the Lord. Because of Jesus Christ, we can read this statement as non-Israelites and understand it applies to us as well. John 3:16 For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This historical moment of God's choosing laid the foundation for Jesus Christ to enter the world and to really offer salvation for everyone. And so what does this love look like? What does this love look like on our side? Well, we find that in Romans 8, 28 through 39, and it's kind of a long reading, but we're going to read it together. Romans 8, 28 through 39. He starts by saying, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give all, us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or dangerousness or, or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's, that's what it looks like. And when we 
wrap our mind around this God-first reality of love. It's God-first reality of his love. We begin to understand how precious of a gift it is. 1 John 4, 19. We love because he first loved us. Romans 5, 6 through 8, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will scarcely die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, but God shows his love for us, and while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Everything flows from God choosing to love us. God's choice came first, and that, I believe, is the purest form of love. Church, I have loved you, says the Lord. There's only one way to the things that matter, things that we need, the things that we desire, and it is only possible because God chose to make it so. Now, I suspect there are some of you this morning, like the Edomites, who think you can do it on your own. I can rebuild this, you think to yourself, but, but you can't. God chose to shower blessings on one group and curses on another, and then he sent his son so that you would have a choice which group you would belong to. And it all flows from him, and it is because of him, and if it was left to us, not a single one of us would have any sort of access to salvation. But because he chose to love, because he chose to act, things can be different. So may we be a people who never question God's love. May we never allow the results of our brokenness to be placed on him as if he is responsible. And may we always recognize that he is great and has loved us by giving us a path. So my question to you today is, will you take that path? If you are living contrary to his design, I I believe you will feel the pain if you haven't already. The New Testament is clear through belief in Jesus and participating in his death through baptism and being resurrected to newness of life. That is how we, we become one of the chosen, one of the elect, one of those who is predestined for heaven and will be there because of his choosing. If you believe that, I hope you'll be baptized today. If you'd like to study, we would love to show you the things that we see. Or if you would like prayers of restoration, come forward as we stand and sing.